The following is a Tony Lasano podcast. An Opie show on the Radio Misfits Podcast Network. This is Minutia Man with Rick and Dave. And guests. A very special Minutia Man, Rick. Yeah, I think that's the way to call it. It's a very special Minutia Man. Today we have not just Rick and Dave, which you'd think would be enough. They're but getting it for free. It's usually too, too yeah. much. Yeah. But we also have two professional journalists yeah. in One the studio former. with us. I'm uh, former. Go with it, Jay. Okay. Go with it, Jay. <laughs> we have Dane Blacko, a WFLD TV uh, reporter. For Hello. how many years now, Dane? Uh, 26 going on 27 shortly. And Not that we, I'm counting. We have Jay Schatz, who is a former reporter for WCPO-TV in Cincinnati, a nine-time Emmy winner. Well, thank you for mentioning Hey, Dane, how many, <laughs> Dane how many Emmys do you have? I, I don't know. I honestly <laughs> don't know. True story, we were at Dane's house. Uh, I think it was... New Year's Day. January 1, yeah. yeah. Um, and uh, he had like five or six Emmys up on the uh, wall. And he said that he could only put those up because at some point you just run out of room <laughs> when you've got as many Emmys That's right. as the Dane Black. That's right. We actually it. added on to our house. Did uh, you? When I won uh, the sixth. <laughs> okay. Yeah. So you're asking why? Why are these guys here on this show? I'm asking myself. <laughs> yeah. For those still listening at this point. Jay, we're number 42 in the Philippines right now. Um, hey, by the way, I'm got glad the text 44. I'm glad you brought that up because I actually looked it up. Kamusta. Kamusta is hello in Filipino. Okay, well, there you go. So I wanted so, to be prepared. Wow. The four of us all went to college together. At the same time, we worked at WPGU Radio. Uh, Jay was the general manager. Yes. He was in charge of the station. Yes, largest deficit in, w- <laughs> in WPGU history was uh, on my fingertips. You should be president. I should. That's right. I was the program radio director. Radio. Yeah. Dane was the news director. And Dave was the promotion director. Right. And under my tutelage, uh, we sent uh, uh, listeners to the Ramones concert the day after it happened. <laughs> Why don't you tell that story? <laughs> well, we were yeah, we had a promotion that we were going to send listeners to the Ramones concert, <laughs> and my underlings in Chicago, in so Chicago, we right? Champagne. We were in Champagne. Yeah. So, so we, I don't know how it happened. It was one of my underlings. I didn't. I didn't. It was Betty Stevens and Nancy Davis. That's all. Right. Just to throw them under a bus. Yeah. yeah. But, yeah. What, what are they really, going to do? Really smart, Dave. Yeah. To name names yeah. for these college stories. And, right. and they sent the letter out that it was going to that, right. that it was the day after. It happened. So the so the Monday morning when I came to work, I just said, "Dave, line six. Dave, line seven. Dave, line seven. It was all these. So there you go. And I believe I sent you a very positive general manager note, going, "Nice job, but next time let's try let's try and line up the giveaway." To as the God is my witness, con- I thought turkeys could fly. Right. Right. Cincinnati reference W right. KRP. So you know, so you're talking about some heavy hitters in the champagne or bad market. Um, and so we wanted to bring these guys in because, first of all, we haven't seen Jay in a very long time. Ten huh? years. Ten years. Yeah. And we say Dane, and we see Dane way too often. A little right. too often. And that was by court order. And now that <laughs> now that we've all kind of made peace. Mm. We we just saw Dane recently at a garage poker game mm-hmm. uh, at my house. We have mm-hmm. uh, we play poker in the garage, That's like great. all classy people do. Thanks for the invite. You have my email. <laughs> yeah. Well, uh, next time. That's fine. Right. Next time. And Dane was the big winner. I I won. 
Thirty dollars. Thirty wow. bucks. Thirty damned bucks. Cash. Right. Yeah. And if you, you know how cheap Dane is, that's yeah, a hell of a lot of money. <laughs> yeah. I'm still spending it. Nineteen forty seven immigrant. We wanted to bring these guys in and and take you behind the scenes of a Rick and Dave and Jeez. let you know what we were like. In the, in the formative years. And, you know, these guys knew us back when, and they have stories they'd like to share. We have some stories that we can share about them in their formative oh years. Total so setup. There you go. What would you, like to, what would you like to talk about, fellas? I'd like to talk about the first time I heard you on the radio. So now we're back to 1982 Uh-oh. and hearing uh, your deep, oh, sexually yes. tinged <laughs> yeah. uh, baritone, and in yeah. those days you were more prone to lean into the mic. And <laughs> yeah. Really, yeah, you know, it was like foreplay. And then to meet you, I'm and, getting and a little turned is, on just thinking about it. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, right. And it, it, being attracted to men was in, in my formative years, but, but picturing you as someone far more masculine, masculine. <laughs> and then, and then see, meeting you in person and thinking, yeah. I have never met a man so slight yes. in my life. Yes. I believe it was about 128 pounds at the time. Right, in a, yeah. in a Hawaiian shirt. Yeah. You know, yeah. And, uh, and nice and sweet, but yeah. goofy hats and more... <laughs> Gilbert Gottfried than <laughs> Barry White. Yeah, you just blown a cover because nobody yeah. knows what we look like. Did you have you had ele- elephantitis back then? Didn't you? No, I don't think so. Oh, I think he did. Yeah, maybe. Yeah, you had elephantitis back then. Yeah, I have. Uh, I have some leg issues. We'll get into that later. We're going to discuss medication. <laughs> oh, could we a little bit later? Because <laughs> we are not young anymore. This. Uh, so when we met each other, we're talking about like nineteen eighty. 283, 84. Our prostates were undamaged oh, 35 years <laughs> ago. Oh, well, right. not to talk about Rick's prostate, but doesn't your, doesn't your, uh, but, I, but I think I'm going to. Yeah. Uh, it's sponsored, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> Dr. Sheldon Rabinowitz. Metamucil. Well, doesn't your, didn't your GP? I don't, look, I don't like to brag, but my, <laughs> my, my doctor did tell me I have an incredibly excellent prostate. Yeah. It's like a, it's not swollen at all. It's, uh, it's in great So much shape. so he wanted to touch it a couple of times. <laughs> yeah, right. I'm just saying, it's a pretty damn good prostate. Well, and right. when I had my colonoscopy, you know what my doctor said? That he, I have one of the largest colons that he's ever seen. Wow. <laughs> if you know what I mean. Yeah, right. You know what they say about guys with big colons? Yeah. yeah. And you know that 10 years seems not long enough to me right now that we haven't seen each other. We're sounding like we're a thousand years old, uh, right? Uh, Truster, can I tell you? Uh, yeah. uh, first time I ever uh, went to a proctologist. I was a reporter and a very well-known reporter on Channel Nine. I had a doctor who uh, had me pull my shorts down and bend over, and at that point, he said, "Oh, you work at Channel Nine." <laughs> <laughs> I had a, a similar situation. I, I want to see your live shots. <laughs> This happened to me when I got my vasectomy. When I got my right. vasectomy, uh, the it was at, at Northwestern, so it's a teaching school. So it was a room full of doctors, and they were teaching, you know, how to do the vasectomy. And as the guy is ready to cut my vas, he looks up and he goes, "Wait a minute, are you like Rick the German boy from the <laughs> from Stephen Gary show?" Right. I said, "Yes." He's like, "Hey guys, we got a celebrity," and they're all looking at my penis. <laughs> And my balls, and I, I really, I didn't, I didn't find that a good moment. Disjointed. No. Was the doctor Jewish and the whole German thing? Was that going to be a? Uh, No, I don't think he was. Like Heli wasn't. 
<laughs> yeah, okay. All right, could be. So, Dane Placco. Yes. Newsman since the day I met you. Yeah. When I met Dane, he was like 19, 20 years old, and he, and I believe he introduced himself this way. Hello, Dane Planko. Right. <laughs> yeah. Dane was middle-aged when he was, he was 21, yeah. 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 basically. Yeah. So, you know, we do this thing on the show where we do uh, brushes with greatness. We mm-hmm. reach our hand into the Costco jar, and, and we find uh, a celebrity that I've met, because I've met a lot of them in my career. Yep. But you, Dane, have met quite a few. and. I wish you, you could please tell everybody your Roger Ebert story oh. because it's a it's a it's one for the ages. And it goes back to WPGU. So they went to the Rose Bowl in 1984, and I was the news director at PGU, and I assigned myself <clears throat> to go cover the Rose yeah. Bowl, the which yeah, yeah, right. blew a hole in the With a $300 per diem. Right. 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 Yeah, staying at the best hotel in L.A. So I would go out there and, uh, you know, I get my little tape recorder from PGU, my little cassette tape recorder, and, and we had, it was it was a great thing to cover because I don't know if you've noticed, the line I don't often get to the Rose Bowl, <laughs> so this was kind of a big big deal, Tony Easton, Mike White. I go to the press box at the Rose Bowl Stadium, and there in line in front of me at halftime is Roger Ebert, wow. who's this major superstar. You know, Siskel and Ebert, the movies, and all of that. And in a line I grad, and he'd worked one day at WPGU, and he told me the story. They told me he had no business being in broadcasting. <laughs> he had no talent whatsoever for it. So anyway, I said, hello, hello, Mr. Ebert. How are you doing? I work at WPGU. And he said, oh, yeah, I worked there for a day. And so we say our hellos, and I move on my way. And the game ends. They got blown out like 80 to nothing. And uh, Ebert spies me, and he says, hey, do you have a car? And I said, yeah, I, I got a rental car. He says, would you mind giving me a lift back to the hotel? And I said, yes, Mr. Ebert, <laughs> sure. <laughs> so uh, we finish up our business. He meets me in the parking lot, and I'm with Roger Ebert, Roger effing Ebert. I mean, this is like this blowing me away. And so he gets in the passenger seat. I get in the driver's seat. And then he, I said, how do you get back to your hotel? He's giving me directions. We're going to, like, Santa Ana Boulevard, all these places. And anyway, we come to a red light. We're in the left-hand lane. There's a woman in a car to my right. Light turns green. I go forward. She cuts across me to make a left turn. And I jam on the brakes and get hit from behind in a rental car. And I'm a college student. And <laughs> with I, Roger Ebert. With right. Roger Ebert in the past. <laughs> I have no idea what to do. He snaps me out of it. He goes, chase her, chase her, chase her. <laughs> so I go, okay. So I chase okay, the Mr. car. Okay, Mr. Ebert, if you say <laughs> so. Oh, yeah. If you say so, Mr. Ebert. And so we did. We, I chased the car that caused the accident. We, make, we follow, make a left turn, follow it down. He goes, pull it over, pull it over. He rolls the windows down. He's waving his <laughs> arms at this person, <laughs> yelling at them. Finally, we curb the car. We get out. He gets <laughs> out. He says, you caused that accident back there, and you just drove away. And, da, da, da. and I'm looking at the person who got out of the car, and they're going, why is Roger Ebert yelling at me? <laughs> <laughs> and it, it, he took care of the situation. It was great. We got the person's information. I didn't have to pay anything. I dropped him off his hotel. Years later, my dad, he, he, he put, one of his many books comes out, and he's at a bookstore at Woodfield. My dad goes to, to get an autographed copy, and he mentions to Ebert, hey, my son was with you at the 84 Rose Bowl, and you guys got into an accident. Yeah, she cut right in front of us. <laughs> oh, my. He remembered. Uh-huh. So that's my Roger Ebert story. I like that. Now, Jay, uh, as a, a major celebrity in Cincinnati. Yes. A-lister, buddy. Still. Uh, A-lister. Yeah. Still. Um, 
you have met all the glitterati of uh, of yes. Cincinnati. Why Pete Rose. You? There we go. I sat, uh, sat behind uh, Pete Rose when he got sentenced to prison. Nice, nice. Any stories behind that? Uh, no, that's it. Okay. <laughs> no, I was uh, sitting behind him. That's the yeah. story. I remember Dane telling the Roger Ebert story. <laughs> I mean, if I could retell it in my, in my voice, well, you, you it, might, it might be shorter and funnier. Um, the, um, okay. Okay. Uh, Ouch. No. Um, um, you know, mostly baseball since uh, March shot, uh, the Reds. Uh, I don't have a lot of celebrity well, sightings. You have a uh, Roger Healy from uh, you know, Bill Daly from the old I Dream of Jeannie. Ah, and yes. Bob Newhart was the best man at my parents' wedding. Yeah, that's right. Dude, that's the best. That's a good that's story. That's the best I have. You have yeah. an uncanny resemblance to Jerry Seinfeld. Jerry Seinfeld. Did oh, yeah, you? tell the Jerry Seinfeld story. And uh, uh, with my old nose, I looked really a lot <laughs> like him. And uh, everybody at the, at the newsroom you know, until you just said that, I've huh. been staring at you trying to figure out yeah, what it was like the difference. Yeah, like 15 got a, years, yeah. Yeah, you got a nose job. I, I had well, no I had sinus surgery, but okay. it's masked as, All right. you know, masking nose job. Um, he, uh, uh, everybody had pictures of us comparing the two. We looked identical. I uh, had an opportunity to interview him, and he was just the biggest dick you could possibly, really? possibly really? imagine. Yeah. yeah, I saw the video of it because we used to joke when, when we were in college that, that uh, Jay looked like Jerry Seinfeld. I mean, he really, you were a dead ringer for dead Jerry ringer. Seinfeld. Younger. And when he finally met him, we were all anticipating, you know, what this Thought is going to be like. Thought he would just see it, and all he said was, yeah, you got some Jewish in you, don't you? I said, yeah, and that was <laughs> Yeah, that, that was, was it. it. Yeah, but that's, that's sad. It is sad. It's sad. To meet a legend and be disappointed. Uh, speaking of legends, you know who we got coming up on the uh, later on the show? Tom Dreesen. Tom gonna, Dreesen? Tom Dreesen's going to come by. Uh, Dana, do you have a Tom Dreesen story by any No, chance? I don't. <laughs> okay. <laughs> the following is a Tony Lasano podcast. Oh, 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 what'd sorry. you do? You hit the jingle button? Yeah, I can screw up any broadcast. <laughs> and in anywhere. any studio, Anywhere. Too. <sighs> All right. So one of the things that we wanted to do, having these professional journalists here. So, excuse me. Is that moment gone? Are we just moving <laughs> on? He clearly doesn't want to I tell just, the story. I'm, I'm having difficulty following <laughs> it. Gnarly. He clearly doesn't want to tell the story. He's I can me tell the story. No, no, you don't have to, but that's... Uh, having professional journalists here uh, is a big thing for us because Dave and I are amateur journalists, and we we like to. We've broken some big stories, though. Don't you? We think? have broken right. some stories. We consider our show a collection of kicker stories, and kicker stories for you non-journalists out there is at the end of the newscast. You know when you're transitioning from. And then 40 people died. All right, Jay, well, you yeah. got anything, you know, wacky <laughs> at the end? You know, a squirrel. Uh, right. You know, those stories. Dancing squirrel, right. So Dave has brought a couple of kicker stories, and he's going to have you guys read them to us. Right? Right, exactly. That- so, Dane, I've got three. I'm going to give you first right. shot, Dane. Uh, I've got police accidentally spread porn site link in mass SMS email. All right. I've got doctors now have to warn women not to stick wasp nests in their lady parts. Yeah, this is really going well. <laughs> right. All right. What's the third and one? Your bosses are loving it. Yeah, all right. Of these the third days. one is Texas man faces trial for sending chocolate penis to police employees. <sighs> Which one you want there? All right, I'll go with number three. The penis. All right, okay, there you go. All right, now, Dave, uh, do the transition. And there is no cure for the flesh-eating disease. Dane? <laughs> and our last story today. Uh, Texas man faces trial for sending chocolate penis to police employee. 
Do I really have to read no, this? No, yeah, you come pretty, on. Uh, go with the vagina one. The, the bees in the vagina. Yeah. You want to do, do the vagina one? No, I really don't want to do that. <laughs> Why did you pick these stories? What's the matter do you with not you not listen anyway? to the podcast? These are exactly the stories that we read. You know, there are kicker stories that have nothing to do with genitalia. Okay, well, you had. I sent you an email to bring a kicker story. Did you bring a kicker story? No, I didn't bring okay, a kicker well, story, Dad. Not. All right. Jay, do you want you Jay? Do you want wasp nest or you want porn site? Uh, what happened to the wasp nest again? Uh, is that the lady parts? Yeah. 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 Me and the word vagina. <laughs> wow. All right. Well, this is police accidentally spread porn site via their Sure. Ass. Okay. All right. All right wait, hold on. Wait hold on. for the transition. Victim was found buried in a shallow grave. Jay? <laughs> <laughs> Meanwhile, Dave, police made an embarrassing mistake when sending a mass SMS. I went to a bar on Halstead called Mass SMS. <laughs> a Mass SMS on Thursday morning uh, about a house fire in Neutenhausen. The police accidentally included a link to a pornographic webpage instead of to the police website, comma, authorities confirm. Great broadcast writing. The police sent the message to anyone whose phone had registered in the vicinity of the crime scene the morning the fire took place. Okay. And now Tom Skilling has <laughs> yeah, okay. the weekend right. forecast. I got a kicker story. You want me to do a kicker yes, story here? Now, this is how we do it, Jay. Yeah. Uh, Dane. Here's, uh, Rick, here's a German story that you don't have to fire up the Nazi jingle. Hold on a second. Okay. I have to set it up. And then the plane disappeared into the ocean. <laughs> really, the transitions are the best part, aren't they? German health insurer recommends rubbing one off. Bored of counting sheep at night? Why not just play with yourself? <laughs> Yep, that's the advice from a German health insurer who reckons masturbation could be the cure for insomnia. I am golden. Uh, that's why I sleep so well. From the duh file. Uh, <laughs> masturbation helps you fall asleep, suggests Helmut von Longschlangen. Uh, if you can't sleep, just use your hand to pleasure yourself or use a toy. Then sleep comes all by itself. Back to you. Do you guys want tapes of this show? Yeah. So I'm looking out the window right now, <laughs> and I see a portrait of Paul Harvey uh, right. staring down at right. us. So, so I we, should, Paul we, right we now, haven't explained where we are. You hear that and, spinning noise? Yeah. 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 And, and if I could just, I just got a text. I only have eight Emmys now. So they've, they've, taken, they've taken one away, and, and rightfully so, quite frankly. All right. So we should tell everybody where we are right now. We are at the. We are podcasting from the Museum of Broadcast Communications. We are. Excuse me, just to the listeners, you had no idea. <laughs> Literally, you were mid sentence, and your producer told you where you are. Slipped you a note. We saw. It. Wow. Because he knew that I was wow. going to say it incorrectly. He knew wow. I was going to say it incorrectly. I leave. I live five and a half hours away, and I knew where we are. <laughs> Well, right over here to our left is the Radio Hall of Fame. And, uh, you know, my old friend John Landecker's mm-hmm. in there and Stephen oh. Gary and many other people. Yeah. Gosh, and what so, a shocker you dropped those names in a podcast. <laughs> I'm sure that's a first, first for time, your listeners. First time I've ever mentioned them. Yeah. <laughs> but the, uh, the fun part is that we are living up to that tradition by producing this tremendous broadcast today. And, and have we mentioned that Tom Dreesen is going to be on the show later today? <laughs> I might have a story about that. <laughs> you can tell the Tom Dreesen story. I don't know. See, here's the problem. You know how most people can't remember anything that happened before the age of five? Yeah. For me, it's like 25. <laughs> yeah. We're going to take a quick break, and we'll be right back. Hey! 
Hey, this is Tony Lozano, and if you like podcasts, well, I'm the guy that you want to meet. Well, maybe, but I have my own called Nude Hippo, the podcast, and I do it with uh, many members of and friends, uh, including Kimmy. Hello. We feature some of the coolest guests like Brian Cheverini, Ginger Z, Mr. Skin, Tom Dreesen, and so many more. These are like milestone interviews. They're timeless. So this way you could pick it up at any point. I suggest you start from the beginning. Nude Hippo, the podcast, and Opie Show. Great Talk Radio isn't dead. It just moved to a better place. Radiomisfits.com. <laughs> Coming up on the next episode of the Car Guys Report, Informed Automotive, it's a special guest talking about the 1958 Buick. I'm Mark Vernon. Join me and my special guest for this story and more on the Car Guys Report, a Tony Lasano podcast and OPI production on the Radio Misfits Podcast Network. And we're back. Dane, do you see Rick sweating profusely? Yeah, I know. Like, <laughs> like what, what has happened over the last yeah, like 15 Albert, minutes? It's like the temperature <laughs> on the other side of the room is 115. Seriously, I'm not sweating. I'm crying. You've I'm done virtually more. nothing but tee us up to fill this podcast, <laughs> and you're sweaty. That's right. So we have to put on uh, Tom Dreesen, who has been now on every show on the Radio, on the Radio Misfits Podcast Network this week. He's been on uh, Tony's show. Uh, he's been on what other shows? Uh, back to back, back to, to you. you. Back to you. He's been on back to you. He's you couldn't remember <laughs> that title again. You had to be fed that line. Back I'm not a young you. man. Could I am not a young man. Have been any easier of a title? Yeah, he's remember. also on the Car Guys Report. Actually, no, no, he's not. not. No. no, but he is on Minutia Man, and we're going to bring him on right after this jingle. Here we go. Time now for the Celebrity Minutia Minute. Hey, you got a minute? Celebrity Minutia Minute with Rick and Dave. Okay, joining us on the phone from uh, lovely California is uh, a man who's well-known in Chicago. He's a great comedian, uh, Tom Dreesen. Thanks very much for being on the show with us. I'm happy to do that, and um, and I'm from Sherman Oaks. I'm li- calling you from Sherman Oaks, California. It's a beautiful day out here. It, it, you know, the view and the scenery here is fantastic. Nothing like downtown Harvey. <laughs> well, or uh, the studio. I'm looking at Rick's garage right yeah, here. Yeah, right. We're at Mount Prospect, <laughs> the lovely Mount Prospect, Illinois right now. Uh, well, welcome to the show, Tom. Thanks very much for taking the time. Uh, Tom, you, you and I have met uh, quite a few times. I don't. You probably don't remember me, but I, I used to produce the uh, John Records Landecker show on uh, WJMK when he was there, and you were a frequent guest on the show. And you'd, you'd come on the show, and you had this great story about how John Landecker became an example for you when you would talk to young comedians about how not to do comedy. Is that is that a true story? <laughs> well, what happened was years ago. We're going back in 1971, I think 72. There were no comedy clubs uh, in, in America. I mean, like we have today, over 500 something comedy clubs. So those of us in Chicago who were starting out, um, you know, we had to, we did charities, you know, we would j- j- appear on stage anywhere, anytime you could. There were comedians that would join AA, even though they didn't have a <laughs> Hey, it's an audience. Time. It's a good room, right? <laughs> but, but you had to find some place to get up on stage. So we, I used to say we'd play a phone booth if you promised a call, you know, because we needed that stage time. So... Tim and I had gone to New York and seen the improvisation 
and it was just starting out then and how comics could get up every night and try out the new material. So I came back to Chicago and talked to a man named Henry Norton. Uh, he owned a few clubs, but he owned a club called the Le Pub. And um, I said to him, could we, he, his worst night was Monday night. You know, he didn't have much business, so I convinced him to let us do a comedy night there on Monday night, and it, it became a, uh, Chicago's first comedy club. And so the word got out, and I did John's show, of course, doing promoting it, and uh, and so everybody's coming there. And John said, "I've always wanted to try stand up. I'm going to be there. I'm going to put together what I think is a." Uh, a 10-minute routine, 5 to 10 routine, and then I'm going to get up. So he got there. And, of course, there were comedians who were getting up who had some stage presence and some stage times, and they were new kids. And when John saw that, he ordered a pitcher of beer. <laughs> and he, he drank that so fast that he thought he'd order another pitcher of beer. And, and, then, he, and then John got up after two pitchers of beer. And I've always said to everybody, do not drink two pictures of beer before you do your first stand-up comedy. You know? uh, well, we've got John's phone number, so you can actually have them call him, or, you know, and he'll be happy to, to, to relay that to him. Uh, you had mentioned you know who to- came with him that night was Bob Surratt came with him. Oh, yeah, that's right. Surratt always, <laughs> we always, whenever we get together, we talk about John's debut as a <laughs> his first and his last appearance. <laughs> That's true. He's never done it since. Uh, you had mentioned uh, Tim Reed just a couple of seconds ago, uh, and you guys were the first mixed race comedy team. Did you? And I'm, this is probably a stupid question, but I assume you got heckled at some point by racists while you were doing your act, or 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 were you? I don't know. Let, how did that all shake out? Well, let's go back to. What that era in 1969, right. Tim Reed and I went on stage for the first time. This is our 50th year in show business. For wow, congratulations! We on stage for the first time, <clears throat> we, we, yeah, we were America's first black and white comedy team. In history shows, we were the last. You know, we uh, we we did it for six years all around the country. In 1969, the Vietnam War was raging. I had just gotten out of the service. Students were protesting all over America. African Americans were rioting in every major city in America, right. getting disenfranchised from the system. And, and and even one of the largest riots in the country was in Harvey, Illinois, where I where I grew up at. And so uh, this is what we were experiencing. There was racial tension all over America, and Tim and I. We're going out there trying to make, in the, the backdrop you know, was the Vietnam War and, and, and the riots, and Tim and I were just trying to make America laugh. You know, we did high schools and colleges, and we, we went to 11 prisons in one year. And, wow. um, you know, to just not, not lecturing or anything, just trying to make people laugh. Right. And, and, and we paid the price for that in many cases. On the fourth time around, we went on stage in Chicago Heights, Illinois. A guy put a lit cigarette out in Tim's face and yeah. then tried to beat the... Oh my God! And, and I boxed when I was in the service, but he outweighed me by a hundred pounds. And but it, it was it was a real Donnie Brook, you know. And uh, at University of Illinois, one time a guy took an ice ball, went outside in the snow, and packed an ice ball and threw it and hit me in the face on the stage oh, while we were doing our show. However, that being said, ninety-five percent of the people that saw us liked what we did. But there was always that one element. Yeah. If there was a, a black guy who, uh, now we worked all black clubs too in the north and the south. There were again, there were no comedy clubs, so we worked what they called the Chitlin Circuit, black-owned, right. black-operated nightclubs. 
<clears throat> the 20 grand in, in uh, Detroit, the High Chaparral in Chicago, the Burning Sphere in Chicago, Guys and Gals Lounge in Chicago, Sugar Shack in Boston, Club Harlem in, in Atlantic City. These are the kind of clubs we work. If there was a black guy who hated white people, hated them with a passion, he wasn't mad at me. He was mad at Tim for being with me. Oh, wow. See, and, and, and vice versa, if there was a white guy, a redneck who hated black people with a passion, he wasn't mad at Tim. He was mad at me for being with Tim. Interesting. I'd be the N-word lover. And, yeah. And they didn't mind calling me that every now and then. And in, in down in Atlanta one time, I had a, a real skirmish with three guys in the, in the men's room down there. But that's just, it, it was just what we had to put up with. We paid dues that no other comedy team I'll say. ever had to pay. We wrote a book called Tim and Tom, an American Comedy in Black and White uh, that came out about five years ago. And now, I mean, you can get it on Amazon. I'm not trying to sell the book. It's, but yeah. uh now, because of that book, there's talk of uh, us may, of maybe doing a series. Not Tim and I, we'd produce it, uh, but someone playing uh, Tim and Tom from 1969 to 1975 and maybe do it as a series or as a feature film. We're, me we're meeting with people as we speak right now as I'm talking to you. you know, that would be it's spectacular. Yeah, that would great. Be that's a great fantastic. story. I'd, I'd definitely go see that. Uh, you know, a lot of people uh, know you uh, also from your many appearances on the David Letterman show when he had his show at various different shows. And you and David go way back. Um, how did you meet him? And and do you still talk to him today? Do you, how, what's that relationship like? I talked to him yesterday for two hours. Oh, okay. <laughs> we, we talk on the phone. When he had his, his show, we would talk for like five, ten minutes catching up. But not, and, and, and I did his show about 50 times. Right. And, oh, wow. um, and uh, so we'd, we'd always go to dinner afterward when I'd go to New York. But how I met him, I was, you know, n new out on the West Coast. The comedy team had just split up. And in 1975, uh, you know, I, I came off stage one night and there was this redheaded guy with a beard and he had a old red pickup truck that he drove from Indianapolis with. <laughs> and he said, I sure enjoyed your show, Mr. Dreesen, you know, <laughs> so you're set, you know. So I, I, you know, I'm very uh, outgoing and, and uh, you know, extroverted. So I said, to him, hey, no kidding. What's your name? And Dave, Dave Letterman. Where are you from, Dave? Indianapolis. And so I immediately start talking sports, you know. Indianapolis, let me ask you something. Who did you root for as a baseball team when you were going? I went, to, took it to him. Had I realized he was such a private person, you know, when I, when I first met him, I didn't know what a you know, private guy he was. And I took it to him. And so the next day I saw him, hey, what are you doing? And before you know it, I invited him to go play racquetball with me. And then we started playing basketball together. And by the time I realized that he was really very private, it was too late. We were already friends. You know? <laughs> that's, no, that's great. Had I, had I known that he was that shy and private, I probably would have respected that. And not, not, But I'm so extroverted, I just kept taking it to him. And we became the best of friends and are to this day. Um, you know, he... I, I'm so proud of him and all he's accomplished in his career. Yeah, he's done pretty good. Uh, I went with him the first night that he uh, hosted the Tonight Show. You know, I, wow. I was in the wings and, and, and watched him do it the first time. And um, he, He's just a, a great friend, and there isn't anything that I wouldn't do for him, and I know that same. he has that same feeling for me. Um, could could we, you we, tell him that the, the beard's got to go, though? I mean, <laughs> I like the beard. Uh, do you? Yeah, yeah, I do like the beard. Uh, you know, I, it makes him look like 20 years older, I think. That's just, you know, I, I, I love so, David Letterman. Don't get me wrong. I, you know, well, I, I asked him the other day, I, I, you know, you're not 
doing stand-up anymore, so why don't you become Santa Claus at Macy's? <laughs> <laughs> now, that would be a great Netflix documentary yeah. there, yeah. I think. Um, Frank Sinatra. He told me yesterday, i got to tell you something yeah, so funny. Sure. All right. He told me something yesterday. He said, you know, you always tell the story how we met outside the comedy store. He said, and um, he said, I think it'd be better if we just told everybody that uh, I, you came off stage one night and accused me of stealing one of your jokes, and I denied it. But then you beat the hell out of me in the <laughs> right. parking lot. That's he a better said, one. I want to start telling people that. I said, "No, why would you tell people that?" He said, "Because well, it's just a better story." Speaking of stories, you got any Frank Sinatra stories? You uh, opened for him for many years, and. Uh, you know, being a fly on the wall there must have been a pretty uh, amazing time. Tell, do you have any Frank Sinatra stuff? Well, let me let me correct you. First of all, you said that I opened for Frank Sinatra. I like to think that he closed. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> good, good point. Right. Exactly. Noted. Now he, I toured with Frank Sinatra fourteen years in forty-five, fifty cities a year. Wow. And it was just the greatest experience of a comedian's lifetime. Oh in uh, that 14 years that I toured with Frank, I turned down more sitcoms and more opportunities for shows than most comedians get offered in a lifetime. Uh, and, and for a reason. Uh, at that same time that I was touring with Frank Sinatra, I was also on a, a tour, a golf tour called the Celebrity Players Tour. It was basketball, baseball, football, hockey, tennis, and show business people that were 10 handicap or below. Mm -hmm. So it was Johnny Bench, Mike Schmidt, Mario Lemieux, Lemieux, uh, John Elway, Dan Marino, Michael Jordan. We had 42 Hall of Famers. And and show business, it was Matt Lauer, Brian Gumbel, me, Smokey Robinson, uh, Eddie Marinaro, people like that, and Jack Wagner. And and we were paid for this. Uh, Rick Roden won over $2 million on that tour. We did 10 to 12 cities a year. Wow. I was one of the founders of that tour along with some other guys. But here I was, as a little boy growing up in Harvey, I had eight brothers and sisters. We lived in a shack, you know, raggedy poor, holes in my shoes, you know, all my childhood. I shined shoes in taverns. I set pins in bowling alleys. I caddied in the summertime. I sold newspapers on the corner all to help feed my brothers and sisters. None of this I regret, by the way. But when I was on my hands and knees, shining shoes in bars, Frank Sinatra was on the jukebox. You know, come fly with me. Mm -hmm. And here I was, years later, flying with him all over the world on his private jet. It it was surreal sometimes Uh. when he'd say to me, hey, Tommy, we're going to Chicago, to the Chicago Theater. We're going to knock him dead. And he'd give me a little sock on the jaw. And and he didn't know, but inside I was like, (laughs) you know, Ready to burst in the a little boy jumping up and down, you know. Yeah, and, and then the other thing was, I always loved sports. I played sports, you know, a lot as a kid growing up. But I was a little guy, so I, you know, playing football, I was running back, but getting hurt most of the time. And and uh, I played basketball and in the service. I played basketball, and I I played in a fast pitch softball league till I was 58 years old out here in L.A. Wow. I, I played left field, so and I played basketball. Until I was 48 in the league, I was always very active sports-wise. But at that, you know, local level, if you would have told me when I was growing up that one day you're going to fly all over the world with Frank Sinatra in his private jet and grace the same stage with him, and you're also going to be competing with the greatest athletes of your lifetime, you're going to be getting into an arena, and you're going to compete with the greatest athletes, I'd have said that's absolutely impossible. But here I was doing that. So uh, Christopher Morley, the author, once said, success is living the life you want. 
so whenever they came to me with a sitcom offer or something like that, and I thought, well, I'd have to give up the Celebrity Players Tour competing with all these wonderful athletes that I that I admired my, all my life, and I'd have to give up, you know, flying with Frank and appearing on stage with Frank Sinatra in 45, 50 cities a year. It was, it was a no-brainer. I said, I'm sorry, I don't want to do it, you know. That, and now you're doing our podcast, which is which probably is the, the pinnacle the, of your yeah, career, I would imagine. Exactly. And, and you know, Tom, well, you and I... Uh, like shit, I said earlier, yeah. this is the pinnacle. It's all <laughs> yeah, after. Right. You'll, you'll never top this. You, you know you're not getting paid, right? Yeah. <laughs> so so we, talk, we talked about sports briefly, and, and you and I share a common love, and that is the Cubs. I know you're at Wrigley every year singing Take Me Out to the Ball Game. You were kind enough, uh, Dave and I are publishers, you were kind enough to contribute to our book called Cub Sessions, which uh, you did with uh, Becky Sarwati Maxwell and Randy Richardson. And and I have a book called Every Cub Ever, which is out now. We'd love to send it to you. Which so after we get off the air, uh, get me. I'll get your mailing address, and we'll. Uh, and Rick actually wrote a book that literally has a biography of every, every cub, cub ever. ever. Yeah, two thousand one hundred and really yes, yes, right. I know you. I know you'll love it. We'll send it to you. Rick spent a lot of time oh. in his basement <laughs> doing this. Rick has never kissed a girl, Tom. <laughs> but but I wrote a great book. <laughs> but anyway, uh, about the Cubs. You talk about coming from Harvey, and I, I know you've probably told this story, but I can't remember ever hearing it. How does someone from the south side of Chicago, Harvey, uh, become a Cubs fan, and is that how you also became a boxer? <laughs> <laughs> very, you're, you're very, you don't realize how correct you are. I was like five, six years old listening to Cub games on the radio because my dad listened to Cub games on the radio. So I'm five or six years old and I'm becoming a Cub fan. I'm a little boy. I'm, I'm hearing names like Andy Pafko and, and Peanuts Lowry and and uh, and uh, Phil Cavaretta and uh, Bill Nicholson. These are all my, in the book. My dad was Cub. <laughs> now I'm five or six years old hearing that. I became a Cub fan, not realizing that I was in enemy territory. Yeah. Okay, uh, all right. But, you found out pretty quickly, were, though, didn't you? White Sox fans. <laughs> All White Sox fans around me. By the time I was eight years old, I could take a punch. You know, so, <laughs> <laughs> well, so is it a big thrill no to go up there when, when they Pardon ask me? you to come up there and sing? Uh, is is that still a big thrill oh for you every God. time, or is it well, is it old yeah. hat now? I'm doing it now, September nineteenth this year oh, wow. uh, against St. Louis. When they're playing St. Louis, and Joe Montaigne and I uh, are tied for the most times of singing. On the seventh inning stretch, I think we've done it seventeen or eighteen. Ever since Harry died, right? You know, Joe and I are tied for that. Who's the so, better singer between I, yeah. you and Joe? Who's the better singer? I love going back. Um, it, it's it's really exciting. You know, first of all, I'm I'm a comedian. I'm not a singer. I sang in a choir when I was a little boy, and you know, when I was an altar boy. But um, for you to go out there and forty thousand people, and you get up in that booth, and <laughs> yeah, it's it's a bit intimidating. Uh, you know, but but uh, it's really fun to do. And, and, you know, Cub fan. I, I've always said this about, first of all, I, I rooted for the Sox, too, even though no Sox fan would ever believe that. Jerry Reinsdorf and I are real good friends, and I, I go to dinner with him when I come home, and we tell each other jokes, and, and, and I love the guy, you know. And so, uh, but, but White Sox-Cub fan rivalry is hard to describe to people who don't understand it. When I was growing up, if there was a bar on the south side of Chicago that was a Sox bar, you didn't walk in there with a Cub hat on. Right. You know, uh, that is so it, true. It was, My people can get yeah. kind of ornery. Yeah, Dave, Dave is a White Sox fan. And I've often said that I actually 
would prefer the Cubs losing versus the White Sox winning, to be honest with you. I am, I am one of those petty, small, little White Sox fans. But, well, but, you know, you know when, when the White Sox were going to play, Saint, it looked like they were going to, I think they played St. Louis in the World Series a few years back, or it looked like they were going to be. But, but Mike Downey called me, you know, the great sports writer. He called me and he said, it, 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 will, will Cub fans, if White Sox play St. Louis in the World Series, and St. Louis is supposed to be the Cubs' number one rivalry, he said, if the White Sox played St. Louis, who would Cub fans root for? I said, well, slam dunk, they'd root for St. Louis. <laughs> <laughs> I think you're said, right. No, they would. I said, yes, they would. <laughs> Tom, if the Cubs played Al-Qaeda, I'd be rooting for Al-Qaeda, my friend. <laughs> All right. So we, the, one of the reasons we had you on is because you're going to be in town soon. Please let us know All the uh, stuff. where and how people can see you live. Well, on August 17th, uh, if you're near Valparaiso, Indiana, and I'm sure your show not only goes of over course. to Thailand and over to... We're 84 in Great Britain right now, yeah. Tom. So. Yeah, but number one in Valparaiso. <laughs> Valparaiso. I'm, I'm appearing at the Memorial Opera House with my one-man show, An Evening of Laughter and Stories of Sinatra. It's a 90-minute show that that I put together after Frank passed away. And I, because everywhere I went, people would say, tell me about Frank Sinatra. Tell me a Frank Sinatra story. Yeah. So I put together this 90-minute show, which is stand-up comedy. I mean, the theater goes dark, a screen comes out, and Dennis Farina, God rest his soul, yeah. narrates uh, my, about three minutes of my life and then with film. And then I come walking out, and I do stand-up comedy. And then I, after about 25 minutes of doing stand-up, I segue over to a bar that's on the stage where there's a bottle of Jack Daniels on the bar, which was Frank's drink of choice. Yeah, and he used and to do I, that, too. I, I saw him live once, and, and he would have a little bar up there sometimes and, and act out yeah. to scene at the bar, right? Right. And so what I did do there is I tell a funny story, and the audience laughs, and while they're laughing, the lights go out on stage, and on the screen, Frank starts singing. You see it. Uh, Frank in a video singing, it's quarter to three, there's no one in the place yeah. except you and me. You know, one for my baby. Right. It's a saloon song. When he gets to the chorus, make it one for my baby and one more for the road, he come, He goes off screen and the spotlight hits me and I'm at a bar and I've come home and the audience is in a bar with me. Oh, wow. I'm getting I chills. Them, yeah, this, this. I tell them the first time I heard that voice, I was eight years old, shining shoes in a bar in Harvey, Illinois, and he was on the jukebox. And then I take the audience from that little boy from Harvey, Illinois, hearing Sinatra on the jukebox in, in Harvey to one day carrying his coffin out of a church in Beverly Hills, California. Oh, my gosh. So I take him on that journey. And while I'm telling stories, pictures are authenticating the stories I'm telling on the screen. You know, right. um, it's an audiovisual thing, the word pictures. And, and I have them laughing, 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 laughing. But I take him to the funeral, and I actually have them in tears. And then I turn right around and have them laughing again. Wow. And, and I cl close with a funny monologue. And then I toast them with a Jack Daniels and say, I wish for all of you what Frank Sinatra wished for you. The very last song that he ever sang is that the best is yet to come. Wow. Good night, everybody. And when I say good night, then Frank's singing, the best is yet to come. You know, oh, my gosh. The theater. I got goosebumps. How can people get tickets for this? Uh, they, ooh, they, I should have had that ready for you. They can call the Memorial Opera House in Valparaiso, Indiana. Um, but I have to tell you, call quick because they're almost sold out. Okay. Um, the guy talked to me the other day. And by the way, there's not a bad seat in the house. There's 380 seats in that house. But it's so intimate uh, that, that uh, there's not really a bad seat. Even in the balcony, you're like right on top of the entertainer. So, uh, so but I, the, there's... They can call the Memorial Opera House in Valparaiso, Indiana. 
and, and get tickets there. Oh, it sounds great, and definitely. Hey, Rick and, uh, Rick and Dave might be there. Yeah, you just may see us out there. Thank, uh, thank you very much, Tom, for being on the show. We greatly appreciate it. And uh, the best of luck to you. And, and, and the best uh, is yet to come. And the best uh, is yet to come. Exactly right. And go Cubs. Oh, <laughs> yeah. Okay. I'm sure your partner agrees with that. Yeah, yeah. whatever. Yeah, yeah, you we, we will send you a copy of the book, though. Yeah. I'll, uh, um, I, right after we get off the air. No, please. Um, please do that. Please, please do that. Yeah. You know what? Text me. Well, I'll text you and then just text me a mailing address and I'll be happy to send it out to you. Thanks, Tom. Okay. Thank you, guys. Take care. All right. Thank All right. you. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. What a great guy. Thank you so much, Tom Dreesen. That was a, an excellent interview. And also uh, still here in the studio with us, Dane Placco, Jay Schatz. Thanks for coming in, guys. We really appreciate it. Uh, yeah. You're welcome back anytime. How about tomorrow? Thanks. Okay. We'll, we'll do another one tomorrow. Are you going to wear the parachute pants that we bought together? <laughs> you know, tell that story. On a, on a tell that story. Well, there's yeah. not much to it. Yeah. We, bought, we bought parachute pants. Yeah, Jay, my, I, pa- my pair made me gay. Yeah. The other pair <laughs> made you a successful radio host. But uh, there yes. were zippers I was everywhere. parachute pants curious at the time. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, special thanks to executive producer Tony Lasano with opishows.com. Opi is hippo backwards. Opishows.com, distributed by Ed Silla, the Radio Misfits Podcast Network. Great talk at radio isn't dead. It's just moved to a better place. Radiomisfits.com. And Dave will be back again next week with another episode of, of Minutia Man. The proceeding was a presentation of Opi Productions. Find our other great shows wherever you find podcasts, including Opishows.com. Thank you. This has been a presentation of Opi Productions. Tony, can you shut up? I have a lump in my testicles. <laughs> Like uh, Tommy's testicular uh, cyst, we are the cyst that has grown off of Lasano and Friends. So I was trying to explain what exactly and Friends is to one of my friends, and I think the best way I could describe it was it's equivalent to roughly a tumor that has grown off of Lasano and Friends and gained its own legs. <laughs> hey, if you like this type of content, look us up on RadioMisfits.com. That's and. Friends. You can find and friends on iTunes, Spotify, iHeart, Google Play, Stitcher, and iTunes, and the Radio Misfits Podcast Network. Don't listen to this show. No one listen to this show. You gotta wait for the connection to happen. Operator, collect call from and friends. Oh my god, what is this bit? <laughs> I don't know. For these serious topics and more, listen, subscribe, and rate and friends on iTunes, Spotify, iHeart, Google Play, Stitcher, and tune in. Just search for Radio Misfits. Hi, I'm Howard Sudbury. I'm Steve Baskerville. On the next Back to You, a communications expert is going to try to teach Steve and I how to communicate. And he says one important thing you better answer, and every audience wants to know, what's in it for me? All right, that's on the next Back to You on the Radio Misfits Podcast Network.